Welcome to The War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener-supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. It was really an indictment on the senior senior system that should be guiding American foreign diplomacy, and it's it's just failing holistically. Okay. As someone who's not been in the military, maybe unpack for us where a lieutenant colonel ranks in the hierarchy so we can understand who you would have been reporting to and who would have been underneath you. Yeah, so a lieutenant colonel is about 17 to 21 years of officer experience. If you're prior enlisted, you'll be in longer, but just straight being an officer at 17 to 21 years, you're lieutenant colonel. And um, yeah, there's four, it's an 05, so there's four ranks below you. There's, and then there's a, a bunch of ranks, but whether it's a colonel and generals is the only thing above you at that point. Okay, so you're dealing with some generals in from time to time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And in the Marine Corps, um, being a lieutenant colonel, are you dealing with uh, generals from other branches or is it primarily just direct command? It depends on what your job is. So if you're in a joint billet, you're going to be dealing with generals from other services. But if you're just in your service with whatever your job is, and it's probably just your service that you're dealing with. Okay. So what made you want to go this route of being a, a, a an officer in the Marine Corps? What got you on this track? 2004, I was an accountant and the war was hot and heavy. And I decided I wanted to give back more to America. I wanted to lead people in the combat. So I chose Marine Corps and, and sought out infantry. So you were an accountant? I was, yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you laid down the, the trusted calculator for the- I did. That's <laughs> right. I left my pocket protector behind and ran towards the recruiter. Well, okay. And so was that a uh, tough decision or just like you just saw the news and kind of got- you know, I was a, I was always an athlete, man. I played college soccer and I was, I was always a pretty tough guy. I chose accounting because I thought that that parlayed into an FBI job. I just hadn't really pursued all that. So I always kind of wanted to be on my feet, making a difference. And so um, it just it just worked out at that time in my life. Okay. And so what made you, you 17 years in uh, roughly? So what made you decide to leave? Let's kind of get the, the cap ins here. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, th- I was thrust into the media when I made a social media video outlining a list of mistakes as I saw it, the Afghanistan evacuation. And my frustration was bigger than just that. It was senior leaders living a you know indicting young officers for a standard that they don't hold themselves to and the afghanistan evacuation was just a perfect example of that and so i called out some of the mistakes and it led to a series of escalating events for for me in my career yeah so let's talk about just kind of that um from a civilian's perspective watching what was happening in the afghanistan withdrawal um, it, it felt like if you had kind of followed key news articles over the past few years, what was going on in Afghanistan might not have been as how it was being perceived back at home. Um, is that a fair assessment to say that perhaps we're being misled uh, even more than, than most Americans would realize today? Uh, I can't. I mean, that's a generalization. So. I can't speak to what the American people holistically believe. It's, it's hard to get them all on the same page with anything. I can tell you in the military, I think most people understood that 
the government we were standing up was not going to last very long against the Taliban. But the whole problem with Afghanistan is we didn't go there initially to install a new government or fight the Taliban. We went there to destroy Al Qaeda. And so we ended up kind of just biting off more because I think it was lucrative and people weren't savvy enough to push back. So, yeah, well, I mean, let me say like this. Perhaps there were ways to make the initial withdrawal uh, smoother for U.S. Uh, civilians and military personnel leaving. But the end result that we saw in Afghanistan should not have been a surprise to Americans would have been my, my read. And it felt like a lot of Americans were, at least that I, that I come across, were kind of like surprised, like, oh my gosh, like, wow. That yeah, so there's a, there's a couple different, you know, variables in that statement. Number one, if we would have left 2,500 troops, then no, the Taliban wouldn't have just ran through the, you know, Iraqi government. And so, you know, we've done that in Korea. We did that in Germany. I, I don't understand why we didn't do that in Iraq and Afghanistan, to be co- quite honest with you. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands in Europe right now. We, we couldn't afford 2,500 after decades of sacrifices. It, it just seems silly. So, you know, that's that's a separate choice that we made. No, we're not going to leave a small footprint to hold on to all the success. We're just going to pull everything out, which doesn't make sense to me. But let's say we are going to do that. Yes, we could have done it in a manner that wouldn't have resulted in that immediate implosion. That would have just required common sense planning. Right. Well, I think a minute ago you, you touched on the 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 growing scope of the war in Afghanistan, and you know it went from an Al Qaeda mission to a to a Taliban mission. How do you, as someone who's lived through this, how do you evaluate? okay, hey, we've come here, we've done the job, or we think we've done the job, or, or maybe I don't know where your stance is on that, but how is it that you, you go through this process of trying to figure out, um, you know, this is where we are today, and, and we should leave these 2,500 troops, to your, to your point. Is that is that something, even though that wasn't the initial mission, that we should have continued to do? Well, that was, General McKenzie was his position, that we should have left 2,500, and he advised the president on that, and the president told him no. So my position was General McKenzie should have pushed back. I mean, when Carter tried to pull all American troops out of Korea, there was a general in charge named Singlob, and Singlob went public with his discourse, and he was able to change the, the decision on that through public pressure. Um, you know, yeah, as a service member over there, I, I definitely had questions about why the mission was evolving and changing. I put all those in my book, but as a young guy, you always assume that older people with more experience just have more insight than you. And so a lot of my experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, I was operating under the assumption that someone knew something that I didn't. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because maybe under unpack for us this mentality of the chain of command and how it should work and how an officer goes about questioning and receives questions from his subordinates of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the word that people like to use is tact. Um, so you got you're supposed to do it in a tactful way. You're not supposed to bring discredit to you or the service. Uh, but at, at the, I think for me, I felt like it was an exceptional time in American history where I didn't use a lot of tact and I did what I did to bring attention to the situation. But did you find yourself throughout your career where people were was there a point in time where the, the, the superiors were interested in, in hearing conversation? Did it end, I guess, at some point, or was this kind of, um, you know, in 2012, pick a random year, could you have brought these questions up and gotten more uh, response from your superiors? No, not as a captain. I mean, okay. I could have brought it up and they would have placated and given me answers, but it wouldn't have done anything. 
Right. So how do we then, if you say tact and without tact, so without tact is kind of how you got the response with tact, how you're supposed to do it. How should we think about incorporating some of this mentality to the military? I'm not convinced that service members within the military can do much. I think that the change has to come from the American people applying pressure on Congress. I think we need the American people applying pressure for the correct secretary of defense. That's actually going to make the changes that are required. But quite honestly, I've come to the conclusion that within the military, there's just not a lot you can do to change the system. The system is good. You're going to get more return on an investment from external pressure. And so maybe help me understand here. When you think about a general or like the joint chiefs of staff, um, how, how much separation is there? Because the joint chiefs of staff would probably be the most common people might see on events or whatnot. Um, what's the separation between a general and a joint chief? Well, the joint chiefs are the leaders of each service. And so each Air Force, Marine Corps, Army, Navy, each gets their senior general that is put on the joint chiefs. Um, then there's also combatant commanders. So all the joint chiefs report directly to the secretary of defense and then the combatant commanders, we've divided the globe up into seven geographic locations. And each one of those reports directly to the secretary of defense. So the, the joint chiefs responsibility is to train men and equip and provide forces to the combatant commanders. And then the combatant commanders take those forces and employ them how they think uh, is best according to the mission. Okay. And so I would imagine if I'm just thinking about um, a joint chief versus you know a private, right? The sway and influence a private has is none. The joint chief has obviously second most or however you want to view that, but but you know up at the top. So a general is beneath that. At some point in this chain of rank, um, does it become more of a political office? Yeah, I mean they work directly for politicians, right? So 100%. The, I mean Congress once you get a three star has to validate and vote you in. So you're absolutely playing to the the whims of Congress and the politicians. And that's who ultimately allows you to keep playing the game. Okay. And so I guess for me, when I'm hearing you say we want to put pressure on the politicians, this is where I think the ultimate problem I have is trying to figure out how to, to work through this because at some point there's so much money at stake and so much uh, of just posturing and jobs post-career at stake, how can the public actually put pressure on politicians to make them do the right thing? Well, I mean, just how you would put pressure on any politician. You have an issue that's important to you. You write letters and you call. And ultimately, if they're not responding in the way that you want, you vote for somebody else. The way Congress, their lever over the DOD is the budget. And after the Afghanistan evacuation, sound bites of anger, every single congressional representative, not one of them stood against the budget and said, you want $750 billion? Well, give me three names that are accountable or I'm going to take 80 off the top for what you left in Afghanistan. So, you know, it requires the American people to understand the problem and then talk to their representatives about it. Yeah, and so I guess when you think about the military industrial complex, I mean, maybe unpack that. What are your thoughts on the military industrial complex? Do you think it's as pervasive as someone on the outside might view it or is it overhyped? No, I think it's a real problem. I mean, General Mattis went from General Dynamics to Secretary of Defense back to General Dynamics. General Dunford's currently on the Lockheed Martin board. Uh, Secretary Austin went from Raytheon to Secretary of Defense. So they hire these retired four-star generals so that they can garner influence within the active general officer community. I mean, it's insider trading done legally. Right. Okay. Don't we agree there? 
So I, I guess that's, I think, where I come to this wall going, oh, man, can we actually get the politicians to um, move off of some of the stuff? Because they're going to be swayed by a general saying that we need this or a formal general saying we need this. And so um, I don't know if the politicians are uh, as concerned. I mean, if you look at right now with Ukraine, I don't know what your stance is on Ukraine, but we're sending over billions upon billions of dollars to Ukraine. And there's no real clear sentiment if the American people are in favor of that or not, because it's kind of in between elections, right? And so the damage, if it's a negative, will be done by the time the midterms happen. Uh, if it's a positive, then we'll double down on it. But it's not, but it's even not even clear how the American people should view this, because what is our goal with you with supporting Ukraine? And so I, 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 when you get these things, it's not, I'm not sure how we can apply the pressure. And should we, should we make this a single voter issue? Because that would be ultimately where you'd have to go, right? I don't think I understand the question. Well, if you're saying we got to apply the pressure, then should this be the the issue in which you vote or don't vote for a candidate on? Well, I mean, I mean that's individual to each person. So there's obviously always a ton of issues. And so pick which ones are important to you. I would submit to you, most people are probably more worried about jobs, inflation, gas at the pump. But I'll tell you, the mismanagement of the military arm of foreign diplomacy affects all of those things more than anything else. And people just don't really understand the direct correlation to the billions of dollars that are spent that affect gas prices, that affect jobs. And so I think getting the military right is is critical. Is the military too big? Um, I don't know on that. that. I mean, that's subjective in terms of what the mission requirements are. So rather than size, I would go with what are the requirements of the military? And, you know, right now, I think the, the military probably is involved in too many things. And we're not just focused on inflicting violence at a time and place. And so, you know, in that respect, I would submit to you, maybe it is. But then there's other things that I think we could be doing, like southern border security uh, that we're not doing. So I, I would list out what we actually think the requirements of the military are and maybe reevaluate that. Okay. From your perspective on the inside, how, what would you? Uh, rank the priorities of the military should be? Number one is warfighting. So the ability to inflict violence at the time and place of our choosing, project force. Um, so I would start there. And if I was going to continue to fix the military right now, everyone is focused on subjective evaluations. I would sever that because it forces you to get a boss to like you. And that's why we, over 40 years, the time it makes, the, the time it takes to make a four-star general, people become conditioned to just trying to give the boss what they want and not pushing back. So if you made it more of a performance-based system, you would sever that tie, then you'd have more of a focus on warfighting. And then I would um, quickly move out some of the, the bureaucratic leaders that we have now and bring in some young talents to kind of reset the system. So those are the three things I would do right now. Are you satisfied with the process to determine which wars we should and shouldn't fight? Mm. I mean, I guess, yes. Obviously, Congress has to vote on it, right? The president's got 30 days to do contingencies type, type stuff. But I mean, that's how it should be. I think Congress should have to vote on it. And I don't know how else we would do it. So yeah, I guess I am content with the process. Am I content with all the wars that we fought? No. I mean, that probably requires more education of the American people and the ability to think through some of the different narratives that get thrown at us. But um, 
I, the process of Congress voting on it. Yeah, I think that's probably the right way. You mentioned narratives there. How much propaganda when you come back from an deployment or you're watching about something you might have some friends involved with, how much propaganda is there actually in the media versus what's happening on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I, the world we live in now, controlling the beliefs of people is the ultimate power. So it's it's everywhere. And it just requires you to be able to read an article and then question who the author is. Read an article and then question what the alternative motives were for somebody to write it. And so, you know, I think quite honestly, from 2004 to now, a lot has changed in terms of people's skepticism and ability to question certain things. And the advent of the technological era connecting us also uh, makes it harder for people giving half truths. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's that that's out there. You mentioned Iraq earlier. Um, how do we go through the process of having these discussions about the validity of a war like Iraq? Because some people would say, no, we shouldn't have been there. Some people say we should. Obviously, you have the people who were there and did the fighting and, and what you know what they experienced. How do we have those conversations as a country? Yeah, what I would do once once Congress votes on it, I would take a hard look at what the political objectives of the war are. And so if you go back and look at the political objectives for Iraq, Bush clearly stated that he wanted to install a democracy, which is a pretty lofty goal for a culture that's not similar to ours at all. But he never stated that for Afghanistan. It just evolved into that. And so what I would do, you know, once we Congress votes and decides we're going to war, we should critically examine what the political objectives are. And then we should be holding military professionals, the senior four stars, accountable for achieving those objectives. And right now we're not doing that. How are the four stars viewed amongst the men? I think right now the 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 tide is turning. I don't think anyone ever questioned them the last at least the whole time I was in service, but the last couple of years, a lot of a lot of bad decisions have been made. And I think their their credibility is really under attack right now. Yeah, you mentioned earlier um, the, them taking responsibility versus I can't remember who you said it was, but someone else down the chain. Um, when you think about um, some of the controversies, um, uh, oh gosh, what was the um, the camp in Iraq? Um, Abu Ghraib. Yeah, Abu Ghraib. Yeah, you think about that. Um, would that be an example of where you think that the top echelon took the proper responsibility or was it more pushed down to the, to the people who were actually in the, in Abu Ghraib? I think that's a good example of them pushing it down to the, the junior members that were on post there. I don't know if any senior leaders were actually held accountable for that. And same thing going to Vietnam, look at me That's a moral courage case study. It was a massacre in a local village, and it was just company-grade officers that were court-martialed. Not a single general officer was held accountable. So, yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on. We're not holding senior leaders accountable. It's always the guy or gal on the ground. So who is in charge of the court-martial process so we can understand? So, like, one of the ways to fix that would be, like, who's in charge of issuing court-martials? The same general officers that are not being held accountable. So they investigate themselves, find that they did nothing wrong, and the system works just fine. So you would almost have to have an independent audit board or something like that to review. Yeah, I mean, the American justice system works with an independent judicial branch. The military does not have that. The military is its own legislative and judicial branch. It's the same people. And so if you're brought up on charges in the military, do you feel like the defendants get a fair shake at trial? I don't. Yeah, my, my experience is, is I mean – there's so many examples. The Marsoc three is an example that's in the in the media right now. 
three Marsoc Marines um, and a contractor died in a fight that they got into, right? So they're being charged with manslaughter. So, you know, facts of the case, like whatever, never even came to trial. It's still pending right now because the senior law counselor on the East Coast, a colonel, went to the captains that were defending these Marines and told them that they defended people that were basically guilty in the eyes of public opinion that they wouldn't be promoted, right? So the the promotion of def defense attorneys is threatened within the system. So I, I mean, that's just like a, a great example and it should have been thrown out. So the judge threw it out, but then the, the government retried the case. So now they're over three years, this cloud has been hanging over these poor guys' heads. And the facts of just the, the manslaughter incident hasn't even been brought to trial because there's just been so much substantiated illegal activity. The colonel, nothing happened to him. The senior officers that sent that colonel, nothing happened to him. But instead, these three junior Marines, these MARSOC Marines, just sit in purgatory waiting to see if they go to jail for the rest of their life. What is the pressure like to follow an order that you know might not be a valid order? Well, so the cliche that they give is you need to follow orders if it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical. So illegal is pretty easy. It's the immoral or unethical that is subjective. And so, you know, we can argue, was the Afghanistan evacuation immoral, unethical? Like we could have an academic debate about that, right? And I would submit to you, it was. If you knowingly or should have known that it was going to lead to unnecessary loss of life and was preventable, then in my opinion, that's unethical and immoral. Um, but the problem is that's subjective. And so it, it always comes back to a, an academic debate. But if you're a private versus a lieutenant colonel, does the lieutenant colonel have more ability to reject an unethical or unmoral order versus the private? Or is it the pressure, the downward pressure the same? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you climb the corporate ladder, you get more responsibility. I mean, that's just that's true anyway, right? So, lieutenant colonel is going to have more ability to push back, but he's also, if something goes wrong, going to have more scrutiny on what he does. Now, the where it gets weird is in the military for for some reason, at about the one star general officer level, all of a sudden, the you know the ability to push back and the influence continues to grow but their accountability seems to dissolve and i haven't figured out why to be honest with you <laughs> well we could probably posture some posture some guesses <laughs> so are you aware or did you see times in your career where um, officers disobeyed an unmoral or unethical or illegal order and were punished for it despite the fact they were on the right side. I mean, the COVID vaccine is a, a pretty good <laughs> example, right? So, I mean, what better example? We're talking hundreds of thousands. It was not the FDA approved one. It was shoved in. I mean, it, it was, that was illegal. If I mean, I could argue it was immoral and unethical, but I mean, that one was just straight up illegal and they were still punished. So, But beyond COVID, did you see like this, just, you know, on a random Tuesday, like, hey, we're going to go take this thing. And people are like, nope, we can't, we can't do that. And then them actually, because part of this, this cultural mentality would be is to look at examples to where people um, did quote the right thing, stood up to the, the people above them, and they weren't punished for them. That would be one way to look at how to handle those problems in the future. In a system where it's strictly a subjective evaluation, it's impossible 
even if they say there's not recourse, they have now registered you as a problem. Mm. And it comes out in your subjective evaluation. But it, there's these military officers are smart enough to not be so obvious that you can then call them out on that. So if you use like an IG complaint or one of these protected forms of communication, they're going to tell you that it's protected, but your boss is still going to know that you're complaining about them and that you're going to be labeled as a problem. So unless we go to a performance-based system, it's impossible to not have some type of negative implication on any of this stuff. What's been the fallout from your book? My book, not not much, to be honest with you. I, the fallout was from my statements. Once I was out of the military, there's really nothing else that they could do. So I just retold the story and gave some recommendations for how to change it. And, you know, it was a bestseller. It's, it's done well. And, uh, you know, I'm going to keep moving forward. But no, the DOD can't do much anymore. Have you heard from other people supporting you in the military? Yeah, I've heard from peers, other lieutenant colonels that read my book, really enjoyed it. And so there, there is people out there that, you know, even on my level, deeply resonate with it. Um, the debate will rage on, I guess. So one of the questions that you see when you look at former uh, books uh, of military people or CIA agents or whatever, is there's, a, there's, obvious, there's almost always redacted portions of the book. And there's a procedure to get the book published and uh, make sure that you don't break any rules. Was that a problem for you in this book? No, it wasn't a problem for me because everyone that's within my time or experience gets a retirement. And that's why they have to have it reviewed and slash redacted because they're going through the process because they still get a stipend from the government. That wasn't the case with me. I was unique. So they severed all ties with me. So I was able to write the book and they couldn't do anything about it because I don't need anything from them. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that's the connection. So the connection, when you see a redacted portion, it's not that they have to, it's that they want to keep getting paid that's from right. the government. They, 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 they have to do it. That's right. Oh, wow. I, didn't, I never realized that. I, always, I always thought like it's kind of law that they had to follow because you see it in all these no, books. It's, it's not a law. I mean, you can write, this is America. You have freedom of speech once you're a civilian. The reason all the people go through that process is because they still got the tether of a retirement. Oh, and so they're, they're using that as leverage against them. That's right. Huh. <laughs> I never knew that. I never knew that. What was it like to give up your potential retirement? Was that a tough decision? Yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously it's <laughs> a tough decision, right? Um, but it's all working out. I still got opportunities. So yeah. So what is next for you now? Right now I'm booked out to the holidays with this book tour. And then January 23, I'll reassess and decide what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> New book, maybe more books to write. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 actually probably the thing that excites me the most. Um, I don't know. I may go into politics. I haven't figured it out. Um, then there's, I've got business opportunities too. So it's one of the three. What about accounting? Or is that over? No, I won't be going back <laughs> to that. Okay. Pocket protectors put up for good then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Where should we point people to get the book and, and anywhere else you want people to connect? Yeah, with you? you can, you can get the book on Christ. Uh, it's crisis of command. You can buy it on Amazon. You can get it at any bookstore. It's at Barnes and Noble books a million. It's on walmart.com target.com. So crisis of command. Okay, we'll be sure to link to that. You got a social media, website, anything you want to promote? Yeah, uh, at Stuart Scheller. It's really all my, it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Okay, cool. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.